Welcome to the Wellness Project podcast with Angela and Stephen Stewart. Interviews will feature people who have made a difference in their own lives and the lives of others. Uplifting and inspirational conversations. This week, spreading the light is Father Peter McFerry. Father Peter McFerry, thank you so much for joining myself and Stephen. Our first podcast on the Wellness Project. Um, you've won multiple awards. You've been the voice for the homeless people in Ireland since the 70s. You've written several books. Um, but I suppose before we go into all of that, why don't we go back to the beginning? And was there something in your own childhood that inspired you, that created that need within you to help other people? Where does that come from? I think that possibly comes from my father, who was a doctor in a small town up in Newry. And in those days, uh, doctors didn't have a practice with assistants and all that who could share the burden. So uh, my, uh, my father was a doctor, he had his patients, and I would frequently hear the phone ringing in the early hours of the morning, and he'd get up and he'd go out to see his patients, and he was virtually on call 24-7. Uh, and I never heard a complaint from him. So I think that gave me a sense of service. And then my mother was a Welsh Protestant who converted to Catholicism. Uh, to mar- in order to marry my father, because my father, if my father had married a Protestant in those days, he was going to go to hell for all eternity. <laughs> so to avoid that fate, my mother became a Catholic, and uh, like many converts, became more Catholic than the Catholics themselves. So I think I got that sense of faith from my mother, service from my father. So when I was thinking what I would do with my life, I think the two of them came together in, well, becoming a priest was a way of of combining those or uh, they would merge very suitably, especially back in the 1960s when, uh, you know, the Catholic faith was was very strong and uh, uh, people, uh, it hadn't begun yet to, to collapse. Uh, so yeah I decided then I would I was in a Jesuit school so I decided I'd join the Jesuits see how it went and that's what I did and can I ask um, when did you get a calling for it to be ordained though was it like no, a, no it was just no there's no way I think you decide to be uh, to be a priest the same way as you decide to be anything else you look what do you want to do with your life what are the options available uh, and 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 you make a choice so there was no big blinding moment or <laughs> there was no uh, there was no there was no time or moment when i could say no that was when i made my decision as i was going through secondary school i said yes i think i'd like to try uh, become a jesuit uh, and so I became a Jesuit and said, well, I'll try it and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I'm very glad I did and I have no regrets. That's what I was going to ask, so there's no regrets. But what did your parents think when you told them? They were happy as long as I was, I was happy. And those days, yeah, I think probably in those days, every parent wanted a son to become a priest and maybe a daughter to become a nun. Uh, it was... Uh, it was those days when Catholicism was at its as it was at its peak, really. So uh, they were happy as long as uh, as long as I was happy to do that. They were happy to support me. And was it after you became ordained that uh, your first encounter with homelessness, or was it always um, an experience that you would have? No, the homelessness never uh, registered on my. Uh, I, I grew up in a very middle class home. I had very middle class attitudes. I. Uh, I, I had very little encounter with people who were who were poor. Uh, 
And that continued as I was when I joined the Jesuits, and it continued as I was training in the Jesuits. Uh, and originally, I was proposed. I was thinking that I would become a teacher in a posh school because the Jesuits were running posh schools in those days. Mm-hmm. Still are running some of them. Um, and then I, uh, I was teaching in Belvedere College, which is an inner city school for for a fee paying school. Uh, in located in the inner city and at the back of Belvedere College there was a block of flats and there was a youth club there for the kids in the flats and somebody in the youth club in, whom I knew invited me up to uh, the youth club and I went up and I, I I loved it and the kids were great and kids were very different from the middle class kids I was teaching in, in Belvedere I mean they were very direct if you annoy them, they just tell you to F off. <laughs> and they expected you to do the same, you know, whereas no kid in Belvedere would ever tell a teacher to F off. Did you like that honesty? Yeah, it was. They, they wore masks. We all wore, wore masks, but they wore a different mask to the, yeah. the, the mask that middle class people wear. And I really loved that. Then in 1974, the Jesuits uh, asked uh, Dublin City Council for a flat in a poor area so that we could see if we could go in and do anything so they gave us a flat in the inner city and they were looking for volunteers to go in and uh, not surprisingly they didn't get too many (laughs) but uh, three of us volunteered myself included Uh, so we went moved into the inner city of Dublin and that's where it all began and even for many years after that it wasn't homelessness that was the issue the issue that was very clear to us very quickly was young people leaving school early Uh, young people in the inner city had little chance of, of it getting a job. Uh, so they were leaving school at the age of 12, hanging around the streets all day long. Their uh, parents mostly unemployed, couldn't give them any money. So they were doing a little bit of robbing. And by the time they got to 16 and 17, they were doing an awful lot of robbing. Mm. And they were going to jail. So that was the issue, and we opened a youth club in the area, we opened a craft centre where they could make lovely crafts and they were able to sell them, make a few bob. And we were able to employ some of the young people making the crafts, we'd sell them to the shops in town in order to pay their wages. Uh, And it was only after a few years doing that I came across a kid sleeping on the street nine years of age. So we said, look, we have a youth club for these young people, we have a craft centre, we have employment schemes, so let's get a little house and open a hostel for some of the kids whose homes are hopelessly unsatisfactory. So we did that and we took in six boys because there were no girls on the streets back in the 70s, that only came later. So we took in six boys up to the age of 16. I thought no more of it. Uh, It was simply another project, uh, another service to the young people of the area. But I ran that for a couple of years and then the young people were leaving that at 16, 16 and a half and they were going back in the streets because there was nothing else for them. So we had to open a hostel for the over 16s, then we had to open a hostel for the over 18s, then the drug problem hit Dublin, we had to open a detox centre, then we had to open a drug-free hostel for those who had finished the, uh, the detox. So one thing just led to another. There was no big plan, there was no, no intention to spend my life uh, working with homeless people. I just went from year to year. Look, so I look what's the uh, what's the need we try and meet that need when you meet that need it opens up other needs you try to meet some of those and then they open up other needs 
So I just went from year to year, and now looking back on it, uh, yeah, I've spent forty years working with with homeless people. Wow. Don't regret. Uh, don't regret one moment of it. Uh, that so it's it's been a very fulfilling experience for me, and I hope beneficial for a few other people. It has been. What about that young boy who was sleeping rough? He's still living with us in one of our apartments. We now have, we have 25 hostels now with about a thousand homeless people every night between them. We have 300 apartments and expanding by about a hundred a year. We have 300 apartments where we can give a homeless person or a homeless family the key of the door and say, this is yours for the rest of your life. You never ever have to be homeless again. Uh, and that young lad has one of those those apartments and he'll have that for the rest of his life and yeah it's been uh, and he was with you for so from such a young age do you effectively he was, he, was, he was in and out with us homelessness isn't a state of uh, uh, isn't a, a, stat, a static state he lived in our hostel uh, for the under 16s then when we opened the hostel for the over 16s he moved into that then he met a girl and they linked up and he had a, he had a child uh, and he went to live with her. They got their own house for a while, but then the relationship broke up and he became homeless again and he came back into our hostels. So homelessness is that uh, fluid sort of situation where you're staying somewhere for a while, then you lose that and you become homeless. Uh, you go into hostels, but then you find somewhere else to stay and you go there. So that was his life. It was in and out of homelessness, but never very far away from homelessness. Thank God he had you. Well, uh, yeah, we're, I mean, we're, we're glad to have been able to, uh, yeah, to. And support. is there a particular situation or person along your, your travel so far, your journey so far with this that has inspired you the, the most to keep going because it's obviously not an easy task that um, that you have and your 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 the whole organisation has. Um, well, well, people sometimes say, "How do you keep going?" And I say, "If I ever stop, they might send me back teaching." <laughs> so, uh, inspirational. There was a Jesuit father, Michael Sweetman. He began all this. He went down and squatted in a flat in Ben Burb Street. Ben Burb Street was the uh, the pits at the time. Um, so he just squatted in a flat. Uh, and then uh, when they demolished Ben Burb Street, uh, he was one of the one Jesuits who moved into, into uh, the inner city with us. Um, and he lived there. And then when they demolished the inner city, we moved to Ballymun and he moved. So he was really a constant uh, constant battler for not just homelessness but for for housing for adequate housing for all he was back in those days when uh, when priests didn't get involved in those sort of social issues but he was there he was standing on platforms he was talking on platforms he was talking with with uh, all sorts of political parties he didn't mind who he was talking with uh, as long as uh, he could uh, as long as he could speak up uh, for change of homeless po housing policy he was quite happy to stand on any platform and uh, and speak so he yeah so he would have been a constant uh, companion as it were uh, in my journey through through the inner city and subsequently out to Ballymun. Did you ever envisage that, you know, 
the, the 300 apartments, the hostels, I mean... No, I, I never uh, I never envisaged it would grow to this. Uh, if I had 40 years ago, I'd probably have turned around and <laughs> run the other way. <laughs> no, we just went for one year, one year at a time. And I think there was something very uh, suitable about that. It grew organically. There was no big plan that we were going to... Uh, to try and, uh, and and achieve it, it just grew organically, and I think that was part of the success of the organisation. And where are we now with homelessness in Ireland? What what is the energy like uh, that's been inputted on the you know, political councillors, um, just general um, public? Uh, are, is there enough? Been done, or is it is it a, a race against time? No, I, I mean I decided I uh, need an hour to talk about homelessness. <laughs> uh, no, homelessness is at crisis point. Uh, the policy that uh, the government have uh, put forward, which is called rebuilding Ireland, clearly isn't working. Mm. The uh, report just recently. Uh, envisaged that homelessness was going to keep rising for the next three years which means that over the five-year plan of rebuilding Ireland which is supposed to reduce homelessness over the whole five-year plan homelessness is going to keep increasing which any 12-year-old child could tell you <laughs> is a failure so homelessness is out of control. Uh, we're in crisis mode. It could become a catastrophe because there's a lot of, particularly mortgages in arrears of more than two years. Many, many of those are going to be find their homes repossessed and uh, and and evicted. So in my view, uh, the rebuilding Ireland policy is is flawed, is radically flawed, and we need to sit down and. Uh, and produce a different one. The big flaw in rebuilding Ireland is that it relies on the private sector to provide housing for, for low-income families. Private sector isn't interested in providing housing for low-income families, but most low-income families now are being pushed into the private rented sector where they don't want to be, but there's no alternative, so they're being pushed into the private rented sector, and at the same time, <clears throat> Most families and single people and couples becoming homeless newly are being evicted from the private rented sector because the landlord says they're selling the house or the rents have gone through to a level they can no longer afford. So the reliance on the private sector, to my mind, is the fundamental flaw in rebuilding Ireland. And uh, I think the evidence uh, suggests that this is... Is, is a failed policy. And what can be done? We need to go back to building social housing. You know, in 1975, this country built 8,500 social houses. In 1985, and we had a recession in the 80s, so we weren't loaded with money, we still built 6,900 council houses. And in 2015, we built 75 council houses. And that's the problem. There are no council housing of any uh, consequence that people can move into if they become homeless. Uh, and pushing them into the private rented sector is, is it to my mind, obviously isn't working because homelessness continues to rise. So we've got to go back to building thousands and thousands of council houses as we did in the, in the past if we are going to address this problem. What's the obstacle? Is it, is it that they're making choices to not spend the money on houses and building the road for congestion and afraid of losing votes? 
from the general public if they don't think what if there's they... a combination of things first of all there's an ideology that uh, you know this uh, that we should privatize everything i mean we've privatized childcare we've virtually privatized care of the elderly we've privatized the esb we've privatized the gas <laughs> we've privatized everything you know and that's an ideology that the private sector should provide and that government should reduce its uh, its impact in all those areas and they've now uh, uh, brought that ideology into the the housing the housing sector the obstacle to building social housing apart from the ideological objection to social housing is as you say uh, <clears throat> people will lose votes if uh, Dublin city council plan to open plan to build Two or three hundred social houses, council houses down the road, the whole neighbourhood will be up in arms. And so the local councillors have to give planning permission, and they believe if they give planning permission, they may lose their jobs at the next election. So, in a way, it comes down to all of us, all of us who, who object to having council houses or traveller accommodation anywhere near us. Uh, uh, we all have a, have a part to play in the failure of our society to address homelessness. Um, I watched you did an interview with The Late Late and you spoke about um, the traffic lights at Newlands Cross. The difference in the price, what was that budget? Is it 100 million that it went into it at the time? Uh, yeah, they, they, they took away the traffic lights at Newlands Cross so that you could drive from Belfast to Cork without stopping. <laughs> Now, it was a very complicated free-flow junction that they created uh, when they removed the traffic lights. It took two years to build, and I've always said it cost uh, 100 million euro to do, and nobody has ever challenged me on that figure. Uh, the, uh, now, back in 2014, when they, when they did this, 100 million euro would have purchased a thousand apartments in Dublin because house prices hadn't yet begun to, to go through the roof. Uh, and in Dublin in 2014, we had 1,200 homeless people. So we could almost have given every homeless person their own apartment with the money that we spent on the traffic lights. Now that's a simplification because you can't just give some homeless people an apartment. Mm. You need a support service and that can be very expensive. But nevertheless, it does uh, crudely illustrate the political priorities uh, of government at that time and the political priorities which continue uh, to, to, to exist uh, today. Like it's obviously a very complicated um resolution that needs to come forward but if you did have the power to influence a nation what would be the first thing you would do there's well in relation to homelessness there are two problems now there's housing those who are homeless and those who are on the social housing waiting list and my solution to that would be start building social housing the government and the semi-state bodies uh, which are under the control of the government own enough land to build 140,000 houses. We should just go and build 140,000 houses. <laughs> uh, now, the, what the government have been doing with land that they own is they're selling it to private developers 
in return for maybe 30% social housing. To my mind, that's a waste of public land. Public land for public housing is one of the uh, one of the slogans that we're uh, using in order to highlight we do have enough land. Uh, and um, some of that is already uh, serviced for housing and has already got planning permission. We just need to go and do it. The other aspect to that is every street you go down in every town and city in Ireland you see empty homes, boarded up homes, uh, apartments over shops. Uh, we need to bring those back into use. It's obscene to have an empty house in the middle of a housing crisis. Mm. Now the government have a, have a scheme whereby the owners can get a grant to bring them back into use but very few owners have taken up that uh, offer. And I would be saying to them, look, you either take up the offer or we compulsorily purchase. It's absurd to have homes lying empty uh, for years and years and years uh, when people are looking for a home. The other problem and the more urgent problem is to prevent more and more people coming into homelessness. Mm. Focus Ireland uh, will say that they, will, they house one homeless people, they, one homeless family every day but three homeless families become, become uh, arrive on their doorstep every day. Mm -hmm. So unless we prevent more and more families and people and individuals and couples becoming homeless, trying to house homeless people is like trying to empty the water out of the bathtub with the tap still flowing. Mm -hmm. So we got to stop that. Where are they coming from? The majority are coming from the private rented sector. They're being evicted because either they can no longer afford to pay the rent, the landlord says they're selling the house, or the landlord says they want to do substantial renovations. Uh, we got to stop the evictions. Now, the only way, to, what I would propose is for three years, just for three years, till we get on top of this problem, it should be illegal for landlords uh, or banks uh, to evict people into homelessness. Now that's not going to cause any landlord to uh, uh, financial ruin. Uh, it may be an inconvenience to a number of landlords, but the alternative is thousands of families going through the trauma of becoming homeless. So I would make it illegal to evict people into homelessness until we get on top of this problem. Makes sense. You know, the other aspect is the mortgage arrears. 40,000 mortgages in arrears of more than two years. Central Bank estimates more than half of those are going to be repossessed. Uh, or they're going to be sold to vulture funds and subsequently repossessed. Uh, now there is a scheme called mortgage to rent <coughs> whereby the house can be bought by a, a housing body and the people, the family living in the house can now pay a rent to the housing body. They're no longer owners, they're now renters. And that's the obvious scheme, to keep people in their homes. Mm -hmm. uh, but the government are not pushing it. Uh, and the restrictions on who is eligible for the mortgage to rent scheme are very limited. I think we need to expand the mortgage to rent scheme to include almost all homes in serious mortgage arrears mm -hmm. and to make it obligatory on the banks because some of the banks, not all of them, but some of the banks are very reluctant to enter into a mortgage to rent uh, resolution of those mortgages.
I mean, think about it. Years ago, people would have associated homelessness um, with people that had addiction problems. But as you're talking about here, it's families. It's people that, just like us, you know, one day their lives was it was working out, and then That's the right. next, their their lives are falling apart. And how are we allowing that to happen? I mean, it's not so long ago that <laughs> we would have been talking about homeless people who, are, who had an addiction or a mental health problem. In two thousand and twelve. Six years ago, seven years ago, there was no such thing as a homeless family in this country. It didn't exist. One or two families a week might become homeless because of the addiction or not paying their rent, or uh, but they were easily rehoused. They were rehoused in areas they didn't want, they didn't want to be rehoused in, but they were rehoused. Today, the biggest category of homelessness is the not to four age group. Families we have seventeen hundred families and rising who are homeless. And we have 3,600 children and rising who are homeless. Uh, and if you include those who had been homeless and have exited homelessness, either into council housing or into the private rented sector, we're talking of thousands of families and tens of thousands of children who have experienced the trauma of being homeless. And that trauma is extremely uh, damaging, particularly for children but it's also damaging for the parents, for the relationship between parents, because you're stressed out all the time. It's damaging for the children are being damaged educationally because you can't go to school and study and concentrate if you're worried about your housing, where you're going to sleep tonight. It's damaging emotionally. It's damaging psychologically. It's it's damaging in so many ways. And it's going to have a knock-on effect in the future where these kids who do miss out in their early childhood. Yeah end up maybe hopefully not but could end up falling into the same situations or other children are very resilient and many of those children will will get over it without and um, it will repair the damage that it has done but some of them won't uh, and some of them will end up in uh, as homeless on drugs in prison because of long-term experience of homelessness what do you say? Like I read that story about um, the the man in the sixties who reared his family, yeah. paid everything, paid all his bills, and then the recession hit. So, with that story in mind, there is still certain individuals out there that see homelessness as a stigma, and that oh sure, didn't they get into that situation themselves? Which is not the case, especially in this man's story and many others like it. Yeah, surprisingly, a lot of people who are now homeless are working. Mm. I brought, uh, there were three people sleeping in cars out in the car park in Ballymun, uh, and I brought them out three dinners at Christmas, and there were only two cars there. And I said, where's the other guy? He's gone to work, they said. So it's not just, uh, it's people who, we dealt with a young man, he had a part-time job, he was paying 900 euros a month rent. Uh, landlord comes along and says the rent's gone up to 1,350. He had no way of paying it, gets evicted and becomes homeless. Dealt with another man who's rearing his two children, doing a great job with the children, they're lovely children, uh, never missed a moment, uh, a month's rent. Landlord comes along and says, I'm selling the house, you have to move out. So himself and the two children ended up in homelessness. That's the new profile of homelessness. And is it the but they're, they're invisible. The uh, 
the only the only homeless people you see are the ones who are begging in town and the ones who are sleeping rough who generally do have an addiction or a mental health problem or sometimes both and so that shapes the perception of homelessness majority of people think all homeless people are like that if you're homeless you must have a problem if you're homeless there must be something wrong with you uh, and that stigma then attaches to everybody who becomes homeless Parents who become homeless tell me they're, uh, they're embarrassed to have to admit that they're homeless. Uh, they feel they're bad parents. They have failed their children. The children won't tell their schoolmates that they're homeless for fear that they, uh, they will be slagged. It's a wonderful film by Roddy Doyle called Rosie. Recommend everybody to see it. But it tries to capture a couple of days in the life of a homeless family, and it really is it's very uh, it's very heart-rending it's very distressing but it's very very real the first time i saw it i thought it was a documentary it was so real so uh, yeah it's uh, that that stigma unfortunately attaches one provincial town said when it was suggested that some homeless families might be relocated from dublin down the country they said no way they're not coming here and that reflects the stigma that uh, homeless families carry with them, un undeserved. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, I felt like saying that the homeless families, if they did go down, might lift the area up a little bit, but I resisted the temptation. Yeah, they might have a bit more of an appreciation on the day-to-day -day well, stuff. And I suppose... Yeah. The thing is, when, when the mortgage arrears really begins to, uh, to bite, uh, that town and every other town will have its own homeless families. And for people who think that they may be on the cusp of, you know, very close to getting homeless, or maybe they're in denial, is there a message you can say, like, is it a thing that ego gets in the way sometimes, prevents you from getting early help when you, maybe you should, or, or thinking of the, the bigger picture down the road? Well, um, people don't know what to do. Most yeah. people who become homeless today have never for one moment in their lives ever thought that they would end up homeless. So they haven't got a clue. And they face the prospect of homelessness in terror. Mm -hmm. They don't know where to go. They don't know what to do. Uh, and I would say, look, if you're facing homelessness, if your landlord is selling the house, uh, or your relationship is breaking up and you're going to, uh, to, to end up homeless, get, get uh, information as, first of all, as soon as possible. Find out where you have to go, what you have to do, and what is available. And then uh, don't wait till the last minute to go and seek seek help. Get help as quickly as you can. How do you cope with it? You know, when you see all of this and you see the hardships, how does it not get in on you? Or does it get in on you? Uh, well, working with homeless people today is far more frustrating than it ever has been because there's so little you can do. Most of the people who come to me, I just say, I'm sorry, I can't do it for you. You know, they're coming, they're homeless, they're put in a hostel full of drug users, they're coming to me saying, look, can you get me a hostel which is drug free? And I have to end up saying, look, I'm sorry, I can't. There's very few of them and you'll be months waiting to get into one. Uh, or they'll come saying, look, I haven't had a bed for the last three nights. Can you get me a bed tonight? And I often have to say, I can't. There aren't any beds uh, available tonight. So it's become very frustrating because there is so little you can do for uh, for homeless people today. But the one thing you can do is treat people with respect. They don't often get treated by, with respect, especially single homeless people. Uh, 
they don't often so uh, the very fact that I would listen to them for 15 or 20 minutes mm-hmm. you know they'll often go away saying well thanks anyway for listening you know yeah. I can't do what they want but thanks anyway for listening so it's just uh, you know the little you can do for homeless people does mean an awful lot to them and how does your empathy like obviously you have huge empathy that you, you've you know continued on this journey for so long um, that you're always open to like even conversations with us today we, we put in a huge amount of research into you and all the interviews you've done um, how does how do you control that from not dragging you down or do you need to take a moment for yourself close the door and pretend everything is okay you know like your mental health how do you look after your mental health walk me dog <laughs> <laughs> that's about it uh, no I think you have to uh, you have to reconcile yourself to the fact that you can't change the world you can't solve all the problems you can just do the little bit that you can do and so I'm happy to to do that little bit and homeless people do appreciate it and they do express that appreciation and that that um, in a way you're the person that some of them lean on and in that sense you're taking on a parental role mm-hmm. now we never would say we are taking on that role because everybody has their own parents no matter how good or bad they were they still have their own parents uh, but uh, they, like would, they would often say to me you're the father i never had you know so you do take on that role when people lean on you for for support uh, and like a parent you can't just walk away you know, you, you have to be there for people when they when they need you, when they want you. Uh, and you can't just say, look, I, I've had it. I'm tired of doing all this. I, I, I'm, I'm, going to, uh, I'm going to give it up. Uh, you, you can, a parent can't do that with a child. No matter how uh, badly the child is, is, is behaving, we can't do I can't do that with homeless people, no matter how frustrating it may be. Uh, so uh, you must have great proud moments when you look at the success stories of the people that have come through the trust well it's great the big job the big satisfaction is to see the face of somebody who has walked into their own apartment or their own house for the first time and it's like a dream come true and a big smile on their face they feel they can't believe it they've experienced homelessness maybe for many years and now they have their own place and they can come in when they want to and leave when they want to. They can go to bed when they want to. They can make a cup of tea. It's for us, it's just, we just take it for granted. But for them, this is a huge, a huge uh, change in life uh, and a wonderful change in life. And they're just so delighted. Uh, problem then of course is loneliness Mm. you're used to being in hostels for a long time and then you move into your own flat and if you're unemployed the loneliness can 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 get to you i would have never even thought of that that's something that i I think most people are probably ignorant to like just myself there when you say it it makes perfect sense yeah People yeah. are used to uh, a, a flat, like a, a busy household environment, yeah, yeah, and then to yeah. go from that absolutely delire and excite with the new house, but yeah. on their own, then how's that balanced? How is that balanced? Do they have balance? Well, we have a drop-in centre. They're welcome to come to, and uh, there are some evenings in the drop-in centre which are 
sort of for special groups. We have one evening for people who are completely drug free, so they're not mixing in a drug environment. We have another yeah. evening for young people, and we put on events. We put on like a cooking lessons, or we'll have a few musicians in to play, or and we'll you know we try and we try and but it's 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 uh, it's difficult to uh, to meet the the loneliness. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we we do the little we can, which helps. But uh, of course, we encourage them to go out and either get a course or get a job. That's the that's the best way of addressing the the homelessness. Uh, you get up in the morning, you go to your course, you're meeting other people. Uh, but in the absence of that, it's uh, what we can do is very limited. And what about jobs? Would people come into you and tell you, you know, I'm, I've gotten this job? Have you had experiences with people that have reached the successes they have wanted to, ah, despite yeah, their circumstances? Yeah, and the, the climate for jobs now is, is fairly good. There are jobs available, not very high paying jobs, but there are jobs available. Uh, yeah, so it's great to see somebody moving from being a homeless drug user to having a stable, steady job, and they keep the job for uh, for years. With, there's a, we had one lad he was doing a preparation for work course uh, and the, 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 the preparation for work course consisted you do a week a week's tra- you do a week's on the course mm-hmm. and that's just to test you to see if you're going to come in every day if you're going to come in in time uh, and then they place you in in various businesses so he was placed in a particular business Marks and Spencer's actually uh, we didn't turn up the first day and they rang me and said go and find out why you didn't turn up so I went out and asked him why didn't you turn up for the job today he said I couldn't go there I used to shoplift there and all the security normally <laughs> 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 so you can run into a few problems but yeah it's great to see uh, people getting a job because ultimately getting a job is the uh, gives them the a solution. value like, it, yeah. is, it is the solution to many of the problems and how do you entice employers to I don't know, become part, is there a network that they can sign up to? to, to no, help? Not, uh, not, uh, not really. There is business in the community. That's the course this lad was, was doing. They try and uh, match people with, uh, with, with, they would have a number of businesses who are willing to, uh, to engage with people who are homeless. Uh, and offer them jobs. Uh, it's funny though that. that you have to have that prerequisite that, that they're willing to engage with. Homeless. Yeah, well, you most know, most employers wouldn't touch anybody. Yeah, who's there's a fear there. Uh, there know. is, yeah. there is. Now, increasingly, people want guard the vetting. Yeah, <laughs> and of course, that uh, excludes a lot of homeless people because if you're homeless, you end up, uh, you end up uh, with petty crimes, public order crimes, trespassing, uh, you know, and uh, you end up with a criminal record, which again militates against you having a. It's a domino effect. Mm, and how, what would you, a message if there are hopefully some employers listening that maybe you can say to them, you know, just open the doors and be a bit more... Um, yeah. I'd say consider it, consider it. Uh, it's not going to be easy. This is not going to be a regular employee, at least initially. Mm-hmm. Uh, but be willing to give somebody a chance. That's all I'd be saying. Yeah. If you haven't worked for years, it's very hard to get up at six o'clock in the morning, arrive in at eight o'clock to work, uh, do a full day's work. So I'd be saying to employers, give somebody a chance. Now, if they miss a day early on, right, call them in, tell them you can't do this, but 
it's not a sackable offence. You've got to make some concession to the fact that this person hasn't got the discipline yet of, of, of going to work every day, turning up on time. And they've got to learn that discipline and try and be a little bit uh, considerate. Uh, if you want somebody just to do a job and to do it as professionally and efficiently as possible, no, you're, that's, that's not what I'm, I'd be looking for. Mm -hmm. I'd be looking for somebody with a good social conscience who's willing to, uh, uh, to, to bend a little bit mm -hmm. in response to the, the difficulties this person is carrying with them. Yeah. Absolutely. What's a day like for you in your life? What a typical day in jail? The, the great thing about my life is there is no typical day. <laughs> uh, my base is our drop-in centre, so I would be there from early morning until maybe early afternoon. But I could be out at a meeting or I could be out giving a talk to a school or something. Uh, and then in the afternoon and evening, I link in with a couple of individuals uh, that I sort of look after. Uh, so, but the day is, every day is totally different. And that's what I like about it. When you're a teacher, you know, at half nine, you have to be standing outside this classroom. And at quarter past 10, you have to be standing outside that classroom. Mm -hmm. Your day is totally organized for you. Uh, so you like a little bit of disorganized. I, I like the flexibility, the freedom. Your day, your day is your own. And about half my day is organized. You know, I have a meeting or I have a talk to give but the other half is dealing with issues as they arise on the day so where do you find joy hey i find joy in linking with homeless people mm. you know the people don't people often don't see behind the the mask homeless person or a drug user but when you get behind the mask, you meet wonderful people, people with great sense of humor often, people with very intelligent. Uh, <clears throat> so it's uh, interacting with, they're my community as it were, you know, and that's, uh, and I enjoy that. And I enjoy the banter and the joking and the crack and, mm -hmm. and that with, uh, with, with, with homeless people. Uh, and who has got to you? Like, you know, like what, what's that connection to you with God? For me, I wrote a book, Jesus, Social Revolutionary. I think, uh, you know, God uh, and the, the, the background to that book is that I believe God had a dream and Jesus revealed the dream that God had for our world. This world is not the way God wanted it to be when God created it. I mean, we have wars, we have famine, we have 25 million refugees, we have, <clears throat> we, we have so much poverty and homelessness. This is not the way it should be. So for me, Jesus came to show us how to live. We are all, every human being is a child of God. Therefore, God's family is the whole human race. And Jesus came to show us how to live as a family. As I often say, in a family of four children, parents don't give three of the children a big steak for their dinner and give the false child bread and jam. Whatever food is available, everybody shares. And yet in this family of God, one billion people go to bed hungry every night. 
And every one of those one billion people is God's beloved child. No parent wants to see their child going to bed hungry every night. God doesn't want to see God's children going to bed hungry every night. And a family of four children, the parents don't give three of the children a nice warm bed and tell the fourth child to sleep outside in the back garden. Whatever rooms are available, everybody piles in. And yet in the family of God, in almost every city of our world, you have people sleeping on the street. And every one of those people sleeping on the street is God's beloved child. Again, no parent wants to see their child sleeping on the street. God doesn't want to see God's children sleeping on the street. So Jesus had a dream, the dream that we could live together as a family, as a happy family, a family of God. And uh, for me then, uh, what makes me a Christian is that I share Jesus' dream, the dream of building a just world where every person can live a fulfilling life. That's what every parent wants for their child. That's what God wants for all God's children. And so we are tasked as Christians to build that world uh, and to reduce the poverty, the, uh, the, the hatred, uh, everything that militates the bigotry, uh, everything that militates against people uh, having a fulfilling having a fulfilling life so that's who God is for me God is the it one who has given all. us that task uh, to continue what Jesus began during his short short life and you don't see whether it's a homeless person or anyone you're you're not um, judging them whether their colour of their skin, their race, and what they believe in, we're all like... Before we become a Christian or a Hindu or a Muslim or a Jew, or before we are a human being. We all belong to the same organisation, the human race. Yeah. Regardless of, what, of our gender, regardless of our sexual orientation, regardless of our colour, regardless of the religion that we have grown up to uh, to believe in. We are all members of the same organisation, the human race. I heard, I read recently, there's only two types of people, left-handed and right-handed. <laughs> yeah. We all have a right to be here. We all have a right to have those basic right. needs met. And I think you've said it so beautifully. Yeah. And um, yes, absolutely beautiful. It made me emotional there. <laughs> Thank you. So I'm, I'm listening in the car to this podcast. Uh, what can I do right now? Like people, I suppose, often think that like you're an individual and look what you've achieved. And I know you keep on saying uh, what little I can do. You, you, I, can, I think we can speak for the, the whole public to, to say you've done more than a little bit. But for the guy or girl or wh whoever traveling, listen to this in their car or at home, and they think they've only got five minutes, maybe they can afford more, but maybe they can only afford five minutes. What can they do? Can they text a number to donate? Can they drop in a, a packet of buns? Or? Three things, three things they can do. First, at a personal level, when you pass a homeless person, don't just pass by, hmm. you know, say hello. When I'm passing, I often say, look, I'm sorry, I don't have any change on me. And very often the answer is, well, that's okay, thanks. Hmm. Homeless people are so used to being ignored. Feeling, feeling rejected, feeling unwanted. Now, when somebody just says, hello, how are you, what's your name? Uh, it means a huge amount. Now, it sounds very little. It takes 10 seconds of your time. It sounds very little, but it means a lot to homeless people. Second thing, of course, is uh, to fund. We raise, this year, we have to raise 8 million euros to provide all our services. Focus Ireland have to raise even more. 
because they're they're a much bigger organization the Simon community have to raise I'm not sure how many millions also so people can also help of course by uh, by donating if they go onto one of the websites we all have uh, we all have uh, information there on how to donate uh, and the third thing though is homelessness is a political problem and it has to be solved politically so uh, we got to put pressure on our politicians to address this problem more effectively. One little simple thing people can do is to write a letter. We need to get home housing, uh, the right to housing into our constitution. What would that do? That would put pressure on government to produce policies to enable that to be uh, effective. We have the right to education in the Constitution and because of that, every single young person in this country is entitled in law to have an education. And if they're not getting it, they can go to the courts and the courts will oblige the government to provide education. We need to get the right to housing into the Constitution. That doesn't mean that tomorrow, the day after, everybody has a right to a key to a house. Of course not, that's not practical. But it does put pressure on government to produce realistic policies that over maybe 10, 15, 20 years would enable everybody to have that right to housing given to them. So a person can write a letter to the Taoiseach, to the Minister for Housing, to their local TDs, get their friends to write that letter. If we could get a body of, of, of pressure uh, on, the, on government and on TDs, uh, to get that into the Constitution, I think it would be a big step step forward. And remember when 2016, when we were celebrating the, uh, the rising, a lot of children in schools were asked, write your Constitution, write your proclamation. Uh, supposing we were, uh, we were writing the proclamation for 2016, what would it be like? And one of the things many of them included in it, the right to housing. Uh, so I think those children are way ahead of us adults. Absolutely. Mm. Uh, as we've seen with climate change. Oh, yeah, the children, children are shaming oh, us. It's you know? I think uh, in that way, in the writing that proclamation, the children were shaming us. It's their future they're talking about. They want to be sure of having somewhere to live and not ending up on the street. And they deserve that right. Father Peter Ferry, it has been a real honour. Thank you so much for your time. We, myself and Stephen, really appreciate it. Thank Pleasure. you. Pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you.